Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. In this third of a series of seven interviews with Margaret Atwood, recorded between 1989 and 2013, in this one, recorded in January 1997, she discusses in detail her now classic novel, Alias Grace, which fictionalizes the notorious 1843 murders of Thomas Kinnear and his housekeeper Nancy Montgomery in Western Canada and the servants Grace Marks and James McDermott who were tried for the crime. A television miniseries based on Alias Grace was produced in 2017 and can be found on Netflix. Joining me for this archive interview was my co-host Richard A. Lupoff, This recording was digitized, remastered, and re-edited in September 2020 and has never been heard in its entirety until now. Our guest is Margaret Atwood, who has a new novel, Alias Grace, a novel about a murder and its aftermath taking place in the 1840s through 1860s in Canada near Toronto. Grace Marks is the... uh, I guess the protagonist or one of the two protagonists of Alias Grace. And this is a true story, a true story that you actually have been interested in since you were very, very young. I'd like you to talk a little bit about what brought you originally to the story of Grace Marks and also a little about the CBC screenplay that you wrote based on this tale and how you came to change it for this novel. Mm-hmm. Well... Going way, 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 way back into the mists of early history, I came to the story through Susanna Moody. And I came to Susanna Moody first because her book called Roughing It in the Bush, which was about the experiences of an English gentlewoman who ends up in a mosquito-infested swamp having thought she was going to the Niagara Peninsula with grapes. She wrote this book called Roughing It in the Bush about how other English gentlefolk should not do this terrible thing. And we had that book when I was a child, and I was interested in it because it had two great big round O's in the name Moody. And I had two great big round O's (laughs) in my last name, and I was learning to read And I was very taken by these O's, and also by the fact that they were not pronounced the same. So this is one of the mysteries of the English language right there. So that was the very first. Then in elementary school, we had an excerpt from Susanna Moody's book. And it was the part where her log cabin burns down in the middle of winter. As you can see, every bad thing happened to her. And that made a deep impression. And then I came back to her when I was in my 20s and a graduate student, and I started writing, for no reason that we will ever understand, a series of poems called The Journals of Susanna Moody. And it was about this experience of going into the woods, knowing nothing about it, having these awful times, and so forth. In a way, it was kind of the upside down of my own experience, because I grew up in the woods, 
and the horror story was going to the city. <laughs> so there I was in the 60s writing these poems, and at that time I read Susanna Moody's second book called Life in the Clearings, and that's where she went to the parts of the Canadas that had houses in them. They were called the Canadas because there were two of them. There was Upper Canada, which was Ontario now, and there was Lower Canada, which is Quebec now. And Ontario was actually further south than Quebec, but they called it Upper Canada because you had to go up the St. Lawrence River to get to it. Anyway, those were the Canadas. She went around to the bits uh, that weren't full of trees and swamps, and she did what all 19th century travelers of this kind did. She went to Niagara Falls, and she went to public institutions, which was very much done in those days, such as the Kingston Penitentiary. They were very proud of the architecture, and the Lunatic Asylum in Toronto. They were very proud of the architecture. <laughs> and she described these things, as, which is what you did then. And she asked to see Grace Marks in the penitentiary. Grace Marks was a famous person. And she wrote up Grace Marks. She wrote up what she looked like, and she wrote up her memory of the crime, for memory only. Her memory was no better than most, as it turns out. Then she went to visit the lunatic asylum some months later, and lo and behold, there was Grace Marks in the lunatic asylum, too, uh, running around in a in devilish excitement and screaming a lot, says Susanna Moody. Susanna Moody ends her account by saying, perhaps the poor girl was deranged all along, and this accounts for her involvement in this terrible crime, and therefore she will be forgiven in the afterlife. End of evangelical story. And that's all I knew, and that's what I based my script on, which was made for CBC television because I was young then, and I thought nonfiction meant true. Although I didn't put in the part, luckily, I didn't put in the part where uh, Susanna Moody has the two servants cutting up the body of the housekeeper into four neat pieces. I was a practical enough young person that I thought, which four pieces? <laughs> and why, <laughs> why would they have bothered to do that? You know, really, and this was the age before chainsaws and would have taken a long time and been quite messy, so hard to film. And anyway, I didn't believe it. So that was the part I didn't believe. I believed all the rest of it. Susanna Moody's version, Grace, is the uh, instigator. The motive is passionate love for her employer, Thomas Kinnear, and passionate jealousy of Thomas Kinnear's mistress, who was also the housekeeper. His name was Nancy Montgomery. And in Susanna Moody's version, Grace Marks wheedles and twists and manipulates the rather sort of nice bloke, manservant, into doing the dastardly killing of Nancy because she wants her out of the way. But then he says, well, I've killed Nancy, now I've got to kill Thomas Kinnear too, and at which point Grace says, no, 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 and he says, yes, 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 and he does it. And that wasn't what Grace had in mind at all. And then he coerces her into running off with him and the silverware. That's uh, <laughs> Susanna Moody's version. 
And that's what I, that's how I did the screenplay. Then somebody said, oh, this would make a great theatrical play. So I did try that, but I didn't like it. I didn't like it. Uh, I wasn't actually good at it, so I was sensible enough to know that. And then I forgot about it, and it lay there forgotten in what early 19th century speculators on the mind, already called the unconscious, uh, for many years. And then it resurfaced in a Zurich hotel room when I was on a book tour. Why Zurich? We do not know. But there it was, and it's the second page of the novel, when they're in the cellar. And I thought, who could these people in the cellar be? They must be uh, Grace Marks, and so forth. And I always pay a lot of attention to those kinds of things, so I started looking at it, and looking back, and doing what I should have done before, which is to go back and see if I could find the actual newspaper reports. Susanna Moody was wrong. She doesn't tell us where it took place. She says 30 miles from Toronto. She was wrong about that. But we've, we did manage to find it. She didn't tell the year either, so we had to cast about in the area and in the time sequence. But once we found the place and the year, we could then find all of these other things, such as the newspaper reports, the trial reports, and what there was. Toward the end of the book, you say that Grace, in the end, gave two or three different accounts of what happened, and McDermott gave a couple of accounts as well. So no matter what you do, you're stuck with at least five different versions when you walk into writing this novel. Yes, and that's even before you run into the versions such as that of Susanna Moody and later writers who are making up their own version. You've got several versions just from the people who were accused. And then you have other people filling in and helping you out by adding yet other versions. And what about court records of the time? Yes, we have the judge's notes. The judge who presided over the trial made notes to himself. Unfortunately, his handwriting is really, really bad. He's known amongst the archivists as the worst handwriter of all of those judges. <laughs> so I could make out words here and there and blots and smudges. It was quite touching to see the actual smears and ink spots that he made right at that time. But there were also court reporters. There was a condensed version of the trial that appeared in a pamphlet put out by one of the newspapers with an eye to the main chance, because this was a very sensational case, and I expect they sold lots of copies. And in that little pamphlet, they put the picture that you have in the book. They put the quotes confessions of Grace and uh, James McDermott, although Grace doesn't actually confess to anything, <laughs> of course. And then they have the, the court report, they have the account of the execution, and so forth. Uh, perhaps we should back up a little bit. Richard Walensky and I have read and enjoyed this book, but I'm sure many of our listeners have not read the book yet. Who actually was Grace Marks? And if that was her real name, why is the book called Alias Grace? Ha-ha. Grace Marks was a 15-going-on-16-year-old servant who had come from Ireland at the age of 12. She was a Northern Irish person. She was a Protestant. And she came right before the Great Famine. She came in 1840. 
Uh, so this isn't one of when you think Irish immigrant, you all you often think of you know a horde of really starving, cholera-ridden people, the time of the famine. These people were only moderately starving and cholera-ridden. And she says, she tells us a bit about herself. She says she's one of nine children. She mentions her father, but not her mother. She went into service pretty much as soon as she got there and worked full-time as a servant until she got to the Kinnear household. And this was not unusual for the time. Some, what we would now call children, went out to work full-time at much earlier ages. Oh, so that was who she was. Why is the novel called Alias Grace? Under her picture, which is a real picture, it says Grace Marks alias Mary Whitney. And one later writer about her says Grace Marks and her many aliases, <laughs> says he. <laughs> so she was a person connected in the minds of others with aliases. I'm guessing that Mary Whitney was the alias that she used when she ran away to the United States, uh, escaping from the scene of the crime. As for why it's called Alias Grace, you must read on. This raises two questions. One is narrow and, and one is quite broad. The narrow one is uh, the question of Grace's mother. Um, whose fate is described uh, very um, movingly in the book. Uh, but since Grace tells us little or nothing about her mother, I wonder then if this is purely invented or, let's say, inferred by Margaret Atwood. The broader question is, how much of, of this book, or when an author is working on a book of this sort, is... Based on historical record, how much is inferred and how much is sheer invention? Okay, my rule for the novel was, if there was a fact that was absolutely known, I could not change it. Example, I would have loved to have had Grace present at the execution of James McDermott, just dramatically, for dramatic reasons. But she was not. When I went back and looked at the records... She was transferred to the Kingston Penitentiary because her death sentence got commuted to life, and she was transferred before the execution took place, so she was not there, alas. Uh, so that's an, an example. A number of facts are that, that kind of fact, absolutely known, and the rest is pretty mushy. <laughs> it's pretty soft. People have different kinds of opinions. When there were different kinds of opinions... Um, I try to give the reader the benefit of those opinions. If somebody is saying Grace was absolutely the worst person since Delilah, she was horrible, she was manipulated, she was mean, she was, she caused this thing, and somebody else says she was actually quite a nice person, you get both of those points of view. When there's a chain of, of, uh, so-called facts that are mutually exclusive, I tried to pick the most plausible line. For instance, one person says, everybody agrees, Thomas Kinnear went to town on his horse on a Thursday. He came back on a Saturday with his horse and wagon. Where was the wagon? <laughs> okay. One person says, Mr. Kinnear's new wagon. Another person says, Mr. Kinnear's newly painted wagon 
A third person says, Mr. Kinnear's wagon was recognized in Toronto, and that's how we knew which steamship these people had gone on to. My inference was Mr. Kinnear's wagon between Thursday and Saturday was being painted. <laughs> it's the only thing that really fits it. So, these kinds of things. One witness will say, I walked into the house and everything was topsy-turvy and we could see immediately this place had been ransacked. Another one said, we walked into the house and everything was neat as a pin and we could not at first see that anything had been taken. Who do you believe? These are both people who claim to have been there. <laughs> it's like every other trial you've ever heard. <laughs> I believed number two because I thought if I was going to be escaping in a wagon trying to get to the United States across Lake Ontario, I would leave the house very neat. Dick Lupoff. Now, when this young girl, Grace Marks, who goes into domestic service at age 12, her initial salary, as I recall, is, is given as room and board plus $1 a month. Over a period of several years, uh, she climbs the corporate ladder or does the equivalent, uh, as we would today, all the way up to room and board plus $2.50 per month. What was the Canadian dollar worth in the 1840s and 50s when these events were taking place? There was no Canadian dollar. People used either American dollars or the English pound, or they used notes issued by banks. But there was not a standardized Canadian dollar at that time, as far as I could make out. So we can assume this is an American dollar, then? We can assume it's an American dollar, but we, we would then have to go some distance around to find out what that American dollar would have bought. And I use the term dollar because that's the term that is used in the records. She says what her wages were. So the answer is not much. It's, it, it's worth a lot more than it would be worth today in terms of its buying power, but it's still not very high. I found um, a record of the same time of a man who was renting a house for $30 a month. So put her $2.50 against that. The, the main value of a servant's wages at that time was the room and board and the perks. They would get uh, cast-off articles of clothing. They would get sort of extras here and there, and they would sometimes have, quotes, presents made to them by the employers. So it wasn't just the $2.50, it was $2.50 plus room and board plus extras. So what they could expect, a male servant could expect pretty much is spending his life as a servant because he's never going to get away. Female servant could expect the same unless she happens to get lucky and get married. Well, this is what most of them in the colonies were doing. They're usually farm girls. Um, even in England, people would go into service to get the experience. It wasn't just the money. It was the experience running a household and learning to do all of these things and saving up for your dowry. If you were having the room and board, you needn't necessarily spend the money. You could save it up and it could be your little nest egg. And once you had a little nest egg, your chances of getting married improved quite a bit. So some of them were working for that, and they would work for, say, three or four or five years and save up. And then they would be known to be more eligible than otherwise. And 
Uh, the idea was to save up and marry a, a fellow who might have a farm of his own or some land, and then eventually you would be in a position to have your own hired girl. Well, it sounds as if from your novel that, in fact, Grace Marks was in a fairly good position. She was an intelligent woman. She was beginning to make good wages. She was a very good housekeeper, or at least you portray her that way. And she was quite attractive and, in fact, remained attractive even through her prison years. This means she would have eventually, had this not happened, more than likely attracted a fairly good sort and would have wound up with a fairly good life, not as a servant. This would have been the thing. But... Of course, she didn't go to the Kinnear household thinking, I'm going to go to the Kinnear household, get involved in a double murder, and end up in the right. Kingston pen. <laughs> that wasn't her intention. So I think it's so, you know, something that there was a chemistry in that household of four people. Grace and James McDermott were only there for three plus weeks. They weren't there for a very long time. What happened in that short period of time to uh, cause two people to end up dead in the cellar and the other two to run away? Was the fact that uh, they were both fired, was that a real fact or was that a, a conjecture? Oh, no. It was evidence at the trial that Nancy had given them their notice. She wanted them out of there. Now, she wanted... James McDermott out of there because they didn't get on. He had had a variety of jobs, according to him, but his latest had been as a kind of assistant to the head of a regiment. And he was used to this all-male society and taking orders from a man. When he took service with the Kinnear household, he expected to be working for Thomas Kinnear in the same capacity. Instead, Thomas Kinnear was a rather easygoing type of man, and he let Nancy run the household. He didn't want to be bothered. And so James McDermott was taking his orders from Nancy, who turns out to have been rather hard to please, and somewhat like Captain Bly in uh, Mutiny on the Bounty. She was inconsistent. Very nice to you one day. Next day, nothing you could do was right. So one day she would want to be pals with her fellow servants, and the next day she'd want to be the lady of the house. So that was the problem with McDermott, as far as we can tell. He resented her. Grace may have been somewhat more complicated. Some people say Nancy was jealous of Grace. Other people say Grace was jealous of Nancy. It might very well have been both, because Thomas Kinnear had an eye to the ladies, and especially to the female servants, and he was already living with one of them. He was probably what we call a remittance man. He was the younger son of a of a half-brother who had come into the estate back in Scotland and had probably packed Thomas off to the colonies to get his rather loose behavior out of the way. <laughs> the one in Scotland ended up being the kind of magistrate of the district, and I think Thomas was a bit of an embarrassment to him. So there he was with an, with an income, went into Toronto every week to the bank, got money. Where did that money come from? I expect it came from Scotland. 
the silverware, the tartan vest, you know, the little telescope, the gold pen knife, all of his objects are very much listed at the trial because, in fact, they were found in James McDermott's suitcase. So we know a lot about his objects. And the rest, you're going to have to do some reading in, and that's the kind of reading in I did. A number of fascinating characters wend their way into and out of this narrative. One fellow who, who really intrigued me wends his way in and out and back in and out again and keeps turning up. Uh, he was a, an itinerant peddler, sometimes showman hypnotist, possible um, medium in the age of uh, spiritualism. And, and spiritualism, in fact, plays a rather interesting uh, uh, subtext throughout the novel. Talk about this fellow, if you would, and his involvement with spiritualism. And was he real? And was he real? Okay. One of my rules that I could, was that I couldn't change facts. The other rule was that I wanted the things in the narrative to have been suggested by elements in the historical record that were not explained. And the peddler is one of them. One of the accounts of the trial, they tried to pin it on this peddler <laughs> as the seller of the shirts. The shirts are like the spoons and Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, you know, sometimes there's four shirts, sometimes there's three. The shirts keep coming and going, and you really have to pay attention to figure out how many shirts there were. But the shirts were a feature because there was this block of shirts that belonged to James McDermott, and one of them turned up on the body of Thomas Kinnear, whereas Mr. Kinnear's shirt turned up in the valise of James McDermott. And it looks very much to me as if somebody took off Thomas Kinnear's shirt and put on one of James McDermott's shirts of inferior quality. So there was much talk about where these shirts had come from and where they had gotten to the places where they were found. And there was another shirt behind the door, and there were yet other shirts, unused ones in the suitcase and so forth. So the peddler comes in via the shirts and the unsuccessful attempt to pin the whole thing on him. And therefore, I could develop a peddler. And I developed my peddler along the lines of the king and the duke and Huckleberry Finn, who have had these various positions. They have been mesmerists. They have been peddlers of notions. They have been itinerant preachers. Um, they have told fortunes and so forth. When I'm in England, I have to explain that in North America at the time, there was a huge amount of social mobility. People just moved around all the time. In fact, checking the land records of, of Richmond Hill, ten years after the Kinnear murder, all of the land, or practically all of it, had changed hands. <laughs> now, these people weren't these stable Victorians that we associate with maybe 1880. They were an earlier bunch who were on the move. So you could turn up in a place and be somebody that you weren't quite easily, as the king and the duke do. Um, middle of the century was fascinated with mesmerism. There's one in Hawthorne's Blythedale Romance, quite a feature. Priscilla, one of the two protagonists, is the kind of medium that you can send into a trance. So people were doing that as a kind of quasi-scientific sideshow. You know, they would charge money, people would come in to see it done, 
uh, was always a male hypnotist. It was always a female subject. Uh, and some of it was called medical clairvoyance. The person would go into a trance and tell you what was wrong with your insides. Safe bet since nobody could see in. Spiritualism as such arose at the end of the 1840s. Two sisters called the Fox Sisters. How does it get into my story? Susanna Moody knew the Fox Sisters. She met one of them, Kate Fox, and got spirit wrappings from Kate Fox. She was a non-believer at the time. She then became a convert to spiritualism herself. Why was that? Her husband was into it and was going off and sitting in dark rooms with other women. Made her very mad. <laughs> so, <laughs> she was a non-believer. And uh, she describes her conversion experience. She said, I was, I was so angry and I was crying. And, and I said, if there be spirits, said I in a spirit of anger, let them make it impossible for me to lift my arm from this table. And lo, to my surprise, I could not lift my arm. And after that, she regularly went into trances and got spirit messages. So did her sister, and so did just about everybody in Kingston and Belleville and Upper State New York, because there was a pocket of it in that area. Then it spread to England, and then you get Mr. Browning's, Mr. Sludge, the medium, etc. But it started in upstate New York. And it was uh, a strange Victorian phenomenon because it was one area in which women could have power, but in a truly Victorian way, by giving up their minds completely and becoming unconscious. Then they could be conduits. So they could achieve importance by obliterating themselves completely. I'd like to broaden the discussion a little bit to the role of women at that particular time and how they were perceived because it appears that they were no more or less than chattel. I mean, not much more than that. Well, legally, yes, but mythologically, much more. Um, and you get this, well, if you think of, for instance, um, children in the Victorian era, now, children were used as basically slave labor. Little boys were stuffed down chimneys to be chimney sweets and, and usually died very early of testicular cancer. And they, were, they died in the factories and they starved in the slums and so forth. But this is the time when you get the glorification of the child hero. This is the age of, of Oliver Twist and Little Nell. So women in fact, were losing the rights that had been legally theirs. One by one, these rights were being removed from them. Beginning of the period, women in Upper Canada could vote if they had inherited land, because voting was done by land tenure. That was removed, and so it went throughout the century. It is the age that shows the most pronounced sexual dimorphism from the point of view of costume. <laughs> that is, the clothing of men and the clothing of women diverged extremely. You see the men increasingly becoming plainer and plainer and darker and darker, the dark business suit, the dark frock coat, the pipe, stovepipe hat, everybody wore them. The only way you could tell the difference between a poor man and the rich man was not the uh, style or the color, it was the cut, the cut. 
And this is where you get these minute distinctions that turn up in Henry James. You know, the scrutiny to see whether somebody was a gentleman or not, these particulars, whether the buttons had buttonholes on your jacket cuffs. If no buttonholes, it wasn't a really good suit. Whereas the women were swelling and ballooning and becoming more and more brightly colored and, and huge and enormous and the age of the crinoline, they, they just, they got bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more and more brightly colored and more and more and more ornamented. And so it was in the social structure. Uh, the women were, mythologized, you know, the, the role of woman, the wonderful, I have a book at home called The True Glory of Woman. Uh, her role was extolled. She was practically a saint, but only if <laughs> she stayed home. <laughs> so you have all of this, The Angel in the House, Coventry Patmore's rather horrid poem. Was The True Glory of Woman written by a man or by a woman? I will give you one guess. It was, in fact, <laughs> it was written by a man, but there were lots of women who cranked this stuff out. It's, uh, there's never been any shortage of people to um, turn out material that supports the general view. Susanna Moody was a woman, and yet she, here she was writing almost men, men's tales. Oh, no. She always took care to say, of course, I am only a woman, but... <laughs> and she would always, she had, in fact, almost makes you rather sick as you keep running across. A man would be able to explain to you the economic workings of the province. I, alas, am only a woman, so I'm going to tell you what people do at funerals, which in fact turns out to be much more interesting. But she's always ex downgrading herself somewhat in this respect. Women, on the other hand, were thought to have a spiritual superiority, a moral and spiritual superiority. They were supposed to, a good woman had this. A bad woman, of course, is much worse than a bad man. But a good woman could lead men in, into the right path. Dickens, Agnes pointing upwards. I always kind of thought with the middle finger, but never mind. <laughs> <laughs> And that's how Lizzie Borden got off. Her defense was a woman with her innate spiritual and moral superiority would be incapable of taking an axe and giving her mother 40 wax. I mean, just by definition, she could not do it. Lizzie Borden was acquitted. She was for this very reason. Um, immediately after she was acquitted, everybody thought she'd done it, whereas Grace was the reverse. She was convicted, and then after... Uh, after that, a number of people thought, well, no, that was wrong. Uh, so it was kind of the reverse. But the big distinction was that in the Grace Marks case, there was a male involved. And in these man and woman both involved in violent crime, public opinion tends to be undivided about the man and divided about the woman. But that also opens the question of if she had been alone or if the man hadn't been as evident would she have been executed then simply because, you know, well, could Grace Marks have done it because, could she have thought of this because she was a woman? I think that if there had been only three people in the household, any three people, nothing would have happened. There was something about the chemistry of those four people. Remove any one of them, and I don't think you would have got them that kind of result. In constructing this book, as you were going into it, 
Did you ever give thought to using Susanna Moody as a character? Yes, I did. How astute of you. <laughs> I did. But if I had used Susanna Moody as the character, I would have had to have my, my uh, Dr. Jordan speak with her. And if he spoke with her, he would have had to have addressed the fact that she had made a number of errors and had also most likely in her description of, of Grace going crazy. She had most likely drawn on on Oliver Twist and Bill Sykes seeing the eyes of Nancy. It's quite telling that Susanna Moody in her account changes the name of Nancy. She calls her Hannah. She's the only person who does. And I thought, why would she do that? Hannah is a variant of Nancy. Why would she do that? And I thought, well, she was probably aware that there was another Nancy who had eyes, whose eyes followed people around, and she probably didn't want to call too much attention to that. Since you mentioned Dr. Jordan, uh, he, he was a, a created character of Margaret Atwood's. He is um, a sort of proto-psychiatrist who is trying to plumb the mind of Grace Marks. Tell us ab about how you created Dr. Jordan and how you established his methodology and the interaction between him and Grace. Well, there were many Dr. Jordans in the 19th century. In fact, at the back of the book, um, I refer to some of the books on pre-Freudian psychiatry that I used as sources. We tend to think of Freud as having sprung fully formed from the head of Zeus, but in fact he didn't. He came after a whole century of experimentation, theory, uh, different schools of thought contending, and the Victorians were fascinated by how we remember things, how we forget things, where we go and we're asleep. <laughs> Somnambulism, there are six operas on that subject in the period, and hypnotism, neurohypnotism, where is the self when you're in a trance? Who is speaking? Is it the spirits of the dead? Is the spiritualist claimed? Is it a submerged part of the personality? Can you really access forgotten memory? through hypnotism, as some of them believed. This is not a new thing. It's an old, old thing. Uh, so this was swirling around throughout the century, as were studies of hysterics and studies of epileptics. This is the period in which it was decided that epilepsy was not a mental illness. <laughs> and all of these things were very much in the air, and you can find them a lot in the in the novels and poetry of the time. Um, beginning of period, Sir Walter Scott. No, Walter Scott work is complete without a madwoman. You have to, there, there's quite a few of them. They uh, leap from battlements, and they uh, chant wild melodies and carry around wildflowers. <laughs> Their hair is always down. <laughs> you see somebody's hair down, you know it means either sex or madness or both. <laughs> What's the difference? So then it progresses. But you have them in a lot of operas. You know, Lucia, famous mad scene. Faust, Gounod's Faust, the most favorite opera of Queen Victoria for some odd reason, and the most popular opera of all time, great mad scene at the end, Marguerite, bonkers, uh, in the prison, hair down. <laughs> oh, well. 
singing of flowers. All of these mad women are associated with flowers, thanks to Ophelia. And in fact, the name Marguerite itself, of course. Margarita. Yes, that's right. Daisy. Daisy. Yes. One other question that, that to me is very important, uh, which has to do with Grace Mark's family, preferably plural families. Uh, her birth family, earlier in the book, uh, we have her father and I believe eight younger siblings. Eight, so uh, nine siblings uh, altogether, two older than Grace. They appear for a while in the book, and then they seem somehow just just to fade into the distance and, and become lost to the narrative. Whatever became of them? Whatever became of them, we do not know. But they did fade out in real life. Um, search of the of who lived where in Toronto of that time shows that they had gone. And this was a time when people moved a lot. They were moving west. They were looking for free land. Why I had the mother die is, I don't think he would have set out for North America with that many children and no wife. Grace herself says in her confession, I've got this many brothers and sisters. I have a father who is a stonemason. She doesn't mention the mother at all. She goes out to service immediately as soon as she gets there. I had assumed that the two other children had already gone off and started working. In those days, number one, most people were illiterate. Many were. And number two, letters were very expensive. So people of that um, level of income usually didn't send them. But as far as we know, the family wasn't at the trial. They never communicated with her in the penitentiary. And a little fact that I didn't put in the book because it doesn't come within the time period I'm writing about. In the 60s, there's records of Grace sending a letter to, quotes, her adopted mother in Toronto. Now, who this was and how she had become the adopted mother, we don't know. But I think adopted mother, if adopted mother, then no real mother. I have one final question, and I know, Rich, you also have one final. And, and that is to ask... Margaret Atwood, as, as the author of Alias Grace, other than being a wonderful read, and, and it truly is, but my question as a reader is, does this book go beyond being, quote, a good read? Does it have meaning and relevance to a reader at the end of the 20th century? Well, I would hope so, but it's not really my, uh, it's not my place to uh, tell you what you should get out of it, if you see what I mean. But I will quote Robertson Davies, who says, we cannot help but be contemporary. In other words, even if you're setting your book in a different time, it's always about now, because you can't help it. Margaret Atwood, there's a role that quilts play in this book, and it, it, uh, it comes through in the chapter titles and in many other places. What do you see the role of the quilt in this book? And are you saying something that we should be looking for? Well, I think there's quite a few roles that it has. Number one, everybody sewed. Number two, in this culture, and particularly the Ohio Valley and around Lake Ontario culture, everyone made quilts and young girls before their marriages were supposed to complete three show that they were ready to be married. That's one. Number two, quilts are made of pieces. 
So is this narrative. <laughs> Number three, as Gray says, you can't have a pattern without light and dark both. Without light and dark both, there is no pattern. And number four, why did women make these things that looked like flags and put them on their beds? What were they calling attention to? Grace has a little thing she says about that. Number five, the language of quilts was a whole language of cultural allusion. Some of them were cozy domestic things like log cabin and basket of flowers, but some of them were pretty sinister, hearts and gizzards. And would you want to sleep on a bed with hearts and gizzards on it? Some of them were biblical. Um, in this book, Solomon's Temple, the Tree of Paradise. Some were mythological, Pandora's Box. Some were tributes to poets, Lady of the Lake to Sir Walter Scott. A young man's fancy to Tennyson. In the spring, a young man's fancy lightly turns to thoughts of love. And so does Simon Jordan's. <laughs> so it's this whole interaction, but also more, most obviously, each quilt pattern title <clears throat> has something to do with the chapter that it heads. I'm not giving away the ending of this book. I'm not going to say what conclusions you drew or what conclusions the reader should draw at the end of this book, but let me ask Margaret Atwood, what do you think happened, apart from anything you wrote here, what do you think actually happened? Was Grace Marks an accomplice? Was she an innocent bystander? Was she uh, the instigator? Do you think I would ever, ever answer that question? <laughs> but let me quote a friend of mine who read the book, and he said, you know, during the book I was thinking, did she or didn't she, did she or didn't she? And you know, by the end of the book, I thought, actually, it doesn't matter. It's the, it's the story of what she goes through on the way that's important, said my friend. Margaret Atwood, Ellie's Grace has come out to excellent reviews. What do you intend on doing in the future? Do you have another book you've begun? Well, I'm knitting this enormous bedspread. No, <laughs> take it back. <laughs> I did once knit an enormous bedspread, but the cat got into it. Um, the cat, which had just been through the burr patch and, and rolled on my knitted bedspread, and everything was not quite the same after that. Um, I don't know is the answer what I'm going to do next, and I never usually do know. I certainly had no intention before I started this book. I had no great plan. I just suddenly began writing it, and that's what usually happens. You've been listening to a January 1997 interview with Margaret Atwood about her now classic novel, Alias Grace. My co-host for this interview was Richard A. Lupoff. A 2017 miniseries based on the novel can be found on Netflix. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. 